You're listening to Asians Represent, a series on the OneShot Podcast Network. I'm your host, Daniel Kwan, and this episode is brought to you by our amazing supporters on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash aznsrepresent for exclusive content, show notes, and more. Welcome, folks, back to Asians Represent. This is episode 69 of the podcast. Um... (laughs) So, episode 69 of the podcast, we, we hit a big milestone, although I think we're way past, I think we're well over 100 at this point. But in terms of our weird numbering system, this is episode 69 of the Agents Represent podcast. Um, and this is kind of the start of a seasonal show that we're going to do called Homebrewing Asia, where each episode we talk about a particular part of Asia. Uh, I don't want to say Asian culture because there is there are multiple cultures within China. Um, so we're looking at different geographic regions, talking about their histories and interesting sources of inspiration. And we are, of course, going to get the correct people to host and be guests for these. Um, and so for this inaugural episode, we're talking about China. And the reason why we think this episode or this sort of format is important is because there is this idea that fantasy is neutral. This idea that, uh, you know, your fantasy worlds are not a reflection of reality, right? Don't get upset over Oriental Adventures. Don't get upset over Karatur, Rokugan, all of that stuff, because it's not real. But the thing is, like, fantasy worlds don't exist in a vacuum. And so for this series, we're going to explore how you can break the traditions of Western RPG design uh, to create worlds that are inspired by different parts of Asia. Uh, I read a really interesting excerpt from a book called Race and Popular Fantasy Literature by Helen Young. And in it, there is a discussion about the habit of whiteness in fantasy. And it was such an, like a simple yet concise an eloquent way of saying, like, talking about the problems of fantasy. And it's this reinforcement of whiteness and its dominance over the world. And so for this one, I have Jeremy and Agatha, who are officially, Agatha has always been, but so Jeremy and is joining Agatha and I officially as a full-on member of Asians Represent. Signed the contract. We're all part of the one-shot network. Look at that. Um, and so I'm really uh, excited because, Jeremy, you've got some stuff that you're going to be doing on the podcast. Uh, once you've kind of settled, you're kind of like world traveler right now, I guess. Yeah. State traveler, State then world traveler, traveler, then world traveler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we've got some really good stuff ahead of us. And, Agatha, this is like the first time you've been back on the show in like a while. Yeah. I'm like still here, everyone. Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> like you're on the Discord, you're doing all sorts of stuff. We unfortunately got a sad email before the start of this, and all three of us were just like really bummed out. Um, uh, a thing that all three of us worked on, uh, worked really hard on, got canceled. Uh, so we can't talk about it. Unfortunately, we got paid, um, and we got paid well. But uh, what I care more more about is the story we were 
going to tell with this thing. I'm really uh, sad. But about, it happens. Really sad about redacted. Redacted was really cool. sad about redacted and that the, the <laughs> redacted, redacted this cool. and redacted that that we worked on. <laughs> mm. It was really cool. Um, and uh, one day maybe we'll be able to talk about it. We'll we'll maybe talk to the folks that we were collaborating with to see what happens. Um, but yeah, we're sad about redacted, but we're happy that. Uh, we're all together again. Um, so that said, I want to kind of start with a question that I know a lot of people will be kind of concerned about. Jeremy, you and I recently worked on a project together, like the first project that we've worked on together of this genre. You and I both worked on a miniatures war game. Mm-hmm. And in the truest fashion, it's a miniature war game that's being made in the UK. Um, it is the the most, it's the, the closest to the root that that you know we could get, uh, called Margrave. And uh, we'll link all of that in the the show notes and uh, and our Patreon show notes as well. Uh, but Jeremy, you worked as a writer on this project, uh, and I worked as a cultural consultant on it for the Asian factions. And we had a lot of meetings with the creator, uh, George of uh, 3CL Studios, who is a, a joy to work with. Yeah, George and is, George is th- good. good. Good people. Good people. Um, and one of the things that came up in my conversations with George was this idea of authenticity. What does it mean and is it possible to bring authenticity into a fantasy world? And so I wanted to sort of bring this question to the two of you. When you're playing your own home games, when you're writing fiction, when you're writing for a production or or anything like that, what does it mean when, you know, the creator or you wants to bring authenticity to a project? Because I feel like that's going to be different because of all three of our actually very different lived experiences. Like, what is authenticity? Because that's something that people are going to struggle with uh, when they're actually making their first TTRPG product or even trying to write something for their home game. Like, what does that mean to you when you say authenticity with regards to, like, our cultures? What do you think? It's a tough one. I feel like... um it's it is very different depending on whether you are writing for your own consumption or if this is for a product that someone may be paying for or someone is consuming not necessarily paying for because like if i want to write something for my own home group it doesn't it doesn't actually matter like whatever i think is authentic and my group thinks is authentic is technically enough you know like and it can be as inaccurate as uh objectively can be but it doesn't matter because the audience is cool with it and and you don't have the responsibility of um of good representation yeah, I like that idea or that point, I should say, about um, authenticity and responsibility, especially when it's a production. Um, 
and you're totally right. Like you don't have to worry if you're playing a home game, um, or you do have to worry to a certain extent, um, because if you are trying to represent another culture in your home game, authenticity can also tie into perpetuating harm, because you can be inauthentic in a way that causes harm to folks. What about you, Jeremy? What do you think? I think, yeah, I, I agree very much with Agatha in that um, whether you're just making something for your home game or whether you're making something that will eventually be played by thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, th those those levels of responsibility are a little bit different. Um, I think one thing that sort of guides me in both areas, because I've done both at this point, you know, freelance and also just regularly run home games is, um, I mean, I... I do tend to follow the mantra of write about what I know, and so I look about. I, I look at the life experiences that I've had, uh, living in Taiwan, living in Hong Kong, uh, being a member of the mixed race Asian American diaspora, and trying to channel some of that into um, the game. Whether that's you know, like our uh, home Pathfinder game, Daniel, where it's it's set in like Tianxia, it's set in it's, <laughs> set in Tianxia, it's, 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 it's set in Goka, which is like. Singapore of Tianxia, but it's set in my version of Goka, which is very like influenced by my time in living in Hong Kong, um, filled with all of the you know joys that I experienced there and all the, the the crazy things that I love about Hong Kong, including you know Hong Kong cinema and stuff like that. Um, and you know, in the official projects, like we also you know Daniel and I also worked on the official Tianxia remake coming out beginning of next year. Um, and I, we really can't say much about that at this point, but I think, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, you know, n not, not illegal to say that we both kind of try to pull from our own experiences, our own lived uh, memories, whether they were of, you know, Asian legends that we grew up with, mythology, or our actual lived times, you know, in Asia or in Canada or, or whatnot. So I think kind of drawing upon your own personal experiences is always a great thing. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of folks want to put like a foreign culture into their um you know for example their D, D games in order to to make something exotic or make something unusual but sometimes you don't necessarily need to do that because your own experiences your own knowledge about this world is deeply interesting and i think if you inject that into you know whatever existing fantasy structure you're working in or whatever homebrew world world you're making you don't necessarily need to bring in like samurai from the so-called far east or some sort of quote-unquote exotic culture to make things seem unusual and engaging yeah that's a really good point like i you make a really good point about like the use of like a i guess a cultural signifier right um, in that book, Race and Popular Fantasy Literature by Helen Young that I mentioned, um, the author notes that there are, and this is their quote, four interconnected elements of fantasy convention found in both sword and sorcery and high fantasy of the 1980s and 1990s, which contribute significantly, um, which contribute significantly its habit of whiteness, cultural and physical geography, medievalism, the somatic markers of protagonists and race logics, uh, which connect physical and non-physical traits to biological descent. And that's something we still see today. Um, I really, really like, and I, I hope our audience resonates with what you said about using, air quotes, 
foreign cultures as a way to make your world interesting. Because you're right. Um, you don't need to put samurai in your medieval world to make it interesting or stand out. Because medieval history itself is full of so much, right? It, it's, it's deep. It's extremely varied. Um, and you don't need to then sort of copy and paste another culture in there um, to make it interesting, to make it engaging for your audience, be it your home game or, you know, your, your production or for your product. Um, no, I really like that. Um, foreign cultures don't make your world interesting. So, Daniel, everything what, else. what is your answer to the question? Like, how do you make something authentic? That's a really interesting one for me. Like, I've talked about this on the on the show a lot, like the being of the, I think my answer would be very different 10 years ago than it would be now, right? Being of the diaspora, you know, I've talked about, you know, being kind of a child of two worlds, yet not really belonging to one of them, right? Like an outsider in North America, right? But also an outsider back in China, uh, and not really truly belonging to either one. And so when you try to, say, speak on your experiences in as a writer for like a production, for a product, it you constantly struggle with this sort of imposter syndrome. Am I even allowed to write about China? There are those tweets that then say like there are people who say, oh, Daniel just pretends to be Asian. I mean, that's not the case. I am Asian. Um, but am I allowed to write about my own culture if I only lived in China as an adult and I didn't grow up there. But that's a fascinating story. Living it in, is a, it is li- a fascinating living story. Living in China as an adult and dealing with the feelings of I am born from this culture, but I'm, I really don't understand it. I, I understand it through the lens of an adult who is trying to figure out what this means to me. Like that, that, that's super fascinating. And and, that's what's kind of showing up in my work. Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of informs how I, how I actually work as a writer, because for me, how I kind of, I was really resistant and I, and many, and I'm sure many Chinese, like, like Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians also feel this way. I was really, I really regret being so resistant of my, my family's culture when I was younger because of this need to assimilate. Like we talked about the model minority and all that, how it has an effect on us. And I wouldn't have really gotten back into like learning about my own culture. If I hadn't started traveling, like I was not really into learning about China until I went to Jordan of all places, not even China. I remember my mom tells a story about when I, First came home from Jordan, and they were like, well, what do you want to eat? What's the first meal you want to have back home? And I said, I just want, like, cha fun. I just want, like, barbecue pork and rice. And I remember my mom being like, what the fuck? Like, why? I was like, I just, it's just what I want. And ever since then, you know, like, obviously, you know, I traveled to China a lot for, like, my doctoral work. I spent a lot of time there, and it had, like, a deep impact on me. And my work but i still struggle with that i still struggle with like oh my chinese is not as good um i can't write chinese um 
or you know when i get a like a request to work on a project and they want like uh like the redacted project i was like i'm glad i brought they actually like i was like they requested me and i was like i want agatha on because there are things that agatha can do that i can't right they're like on this redacted project that was basically this really cool historical Chinese horror thing that Agatha and I wrote. Um, Agatha was really responsible for a lot of the really deep cultural indicators, like with the like language and naming. And I really focused on the Chinese diaspora part of it. Um, and Agatha, while I realize, I, Agatha, oh, I, I just want to shout out because I, I also consulted on this project a little bit, this redacted project. Agatha wrote redacted something project. in Chinese that was so dope that I, I mean, I couldn't read it very well because what she was writing was very, very literary. But I was like in the comments, I was like, Agatha, just beautiful writing here. Well done. Like, I, I want to say that what we did was just too good and they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle Kind it. of? Like, I think it was beyond what... Yeah, yeah, I, I can't say more. But it was it was very, very, very good. Use the word beyond. It's not D&D beyond. Yeah, not, 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 <laughs> D&D, not D&D beyond. It's not it's beyond. Not related D&D to beyond. that. Can you imagine? Scandal. Scandal. Um, no, no, it's, no, it's no not D&D that. Beyond, no. it, what we wrote was, like, extremely Chinese to the point where, like, the yeah. person who was kind of lead managing us was like, Hey, I want to make sure that we do this justice. That you put like a translate, like how to how to say each name and everything. Yeah, and then like, I, I, they literally I, let I did, us be as Chinese as possible. <laughs> and then I I came in and like double checked all this stuff, and and now it's redacted. And yeah, redacted, now redacted, redacted, redacted. So, <sighs> and uh, actually, Jeremy, you've culturally consulted on two things that I've written. Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah, redacted and redacted. Yeah, redacted. Um, and, and it's it's always very uh, it, it's always a lot of fun because I mean what you write is already such a strong base, and it's more like um, they want to bring someone else in to to basically be like, hey, what is this Asian guy writing? Um, and, yeah, <laughs> and I'm always like, this this Asian guy is writing some pretty good stuff, and here's you know additional context, and I can't wait until this comes out. If it comes out, um, but yeah, if to answer your question, out, I get that. Like for me, like. My, like, what does authenticity mean? Like, I, I think you both said, like, you know, you're representing your truest self, right? You are writing about what you know. You are not using your culture or your experience as a way of even othering representations of yourself in your world, right? Making yourself the main character is very much how I, I try to be authentic in my writing, like, I want to see myself, not literally Daniel Kwan, but I want to see myself in the characters. I want to see my experiences in the world. And this kind of leads into a question that I had sent you folks about, like, the idea of, like, the aesthetic. Like, how do you avoid drawing heavily on, like, these pre-existing cultural tropes? Like, before we started recording, we were you know, making jokes about spirit points and, like key like how do you avoid drawing on like pre-existing cultural tropes when you're constructing fantasy worlds how do you write about what you know how do you bring yourself into a project be it personal or professional um and i think authenticity is one part of it right authenticity is both a conversation that you have to have internally with yourself how am i representing my culture and my experience in this work 
but also it's a conversation that you have with the person who hires you or your collaborators. Yeah. I is have... this a representation of yourself from the audience's eyes? And that's where I think I struggle. I think I really struggle about how my work is perceived mm-hmm. by others who identify with my own culture. Right. I, I definitely don't struggle with writing about myself and putting myself out there, but I definitely struggle with the external parts of authenticity. And that's how people are perceiving my work. I think I'm thinking about it in terms of also this could be an interesting resource for people who are not kind of going back to the the title of this episode, which is Homebrewing mm-hmm. Asia Fantasy China. Like if someone is not from this background, like also how you would go about it. I feel like... Um, I think research is important. Um, so, for example, if you if you want to like homebrew China, like don't put ninjas in there. Like that kind of research is important. Um, and I think once you have that, and that's I don't want to just kind of like be like like brushing that aside. Um, like you don't even need to do like actual really deep digging just to make sure that you kind of cover your bases of like okay these things that i want to include is this actually like if i want to do like fantasy china like is this actually in this culture and then once you have that down i think one thing that would be really helpful to make a fantasy um China or even like just a fantasy world that is drawing from like a real world place that you're not a part of is um, taking one aspect of like whatever culture um, or cultural practice that you can identify with and then like or you can find an equivalent for and then presenting that information that way. So an example of that is like um let's say like um the civil exams like in historical china right like um that that was a very big thing um that's basically how you had social mobility um was uh if you can pass the civil exams and you can um become like you can join the courts and you become like a public um, public servant, then you, you get you get a lot of like advantages. Um, like you know, you don't have, like depending on which level it gives you. you it gives you status. Yeah, and it gives you like tax breaks, um, like that kind of um, yeah. things like that. And like an equivalent of like how important that is. It's like sometimes hard, or maybe like for me to understand because I don't you know I don't live um, in that world anymore, but. Like, if I were to be like, okay, uh, civil exams is what I want to put in my fantasy China. And I'm like, it's basically like the SATs, but like... um, But worse. (laughs) But so much worse. But like, if you were like so much better, question mark? Because like, if you you pass the SATs, then like, then your family like moves up or down like a tax you have the extreme potential for social mobility yeah with with these exams but i mean you still see it now with the with the 
Chinese, basically the China's equivalent of the SATs. Yeah. So um, this was a really bad example because I'm kind of coming up with it on the spot. But what I mean is just like finding something that you can really relate with um, or that you and hopefully your audience. um, So it could be, again, like if it's just your table, like something that you all relate to um, and then being like, so this, even though it is from a completely different culture or and it's like exotic in some ways, but also there's something that really grounds it. Um, or so like things that are usually really relatable, like friendship or like, you know, needing to eat or like family stuff. Like usually those are the kind of things that um, I think are great for kind of bringing a sense of authenticity into um, an otherwise exotic setting. And also like things like, oh, this particular dish is a comfort food uh, for this group of people. It's like like us, you know, like when I want to eat, when I'm sad, I want to eat ice cream. This is like ice cream for them. Or, you know, like I feel yeah. like that's kind of how you bring you bring the humanity to it because we are all so we can only see from our own perspective. So you bring the humanity to other people by uh, reflecting us <laughs> on them um, is kind of how I would go about it answering your question from before Daniel that was a really good answer like bringing your own humanity into it I really like that you you know find something you can relate to like like almost like universal themes things yeah. that are associated with being human that can help you kind of be your North Star, right? Kind of like a gateway, not only for your audience, but also a gateway for you as a creator. Yeah. I mean, the things that we did, we always do, like, I mean, we always start with this. We always say, before you even, like, dive in to any of these projects, before you dive into anything like this, the one thing you first have to do is ask yourself, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you using this culture, right? Um, maybe, yeah, you've already found that thing that you can relate to, right? Uh, but always first start with like, hey, why are you doing this in the first place? I think that should first be stated. Like, why are you doing this? Then, you know, all these other tips come into play, right? Um, what is it that you relate to? Uh, why this culture? If there is this universal theme that you can relate to, why haven't you picked your own culture or picked you know, one that is closer to yours? Why have you picked something, in this case, Chinese? Yeah, right? I, 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 I think like related to that, um, remember uh, to characterize things instead of characterizing things. You want to make characters, not caricatures. Um, and that kind of relates to the whole, the, the whole idea of humanity. Uh, all of these things, these, these so-called foreign cultures, you know, they're, they're humans living in, in those cultures, and you want to explore the humanity behind those things that you might initially just want to put in your, your game as, as cool. Uh, so, so an easy example is, you know, um, in, in fantasy games, there's always like, there's the monk class. We always go back to talking about the monk, like the, the martial artist. Um, the martial artist, who is clearly based on a Shaolin monk, transplanted into the quasi-European setting that most fantasy games take place in. 
if you want to include a monk, like if you want to have a character that's basically Bruce Lee, okay, fine, like, sure, you can do that. But you want to do a certain amount of research to, to humanize the, 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 the Bruce Lee character. You don't just want to make him a character who just goes, wata, wata, like jumps around. Um, you, I, I, you would want to go a little bit beyond that. Like if you want to actually have an NPC based off of Bruce Lee who practices something that looks like Jeet Kune Do, don't just have him yell out screaming or say things like be like water and stuff like that actually maybe investigate you know why did bruce lee develop jeet kundo what, what are the um virtues behind that particular style of martial arts and the flexibility that it emphasized you know what does the be like water quote actually mean and how might you describe that in a way to your table that is not just like a stereotypical like oh it's bruce lee look here he is he's a monk like how might you describe that to like the fighter who understands the importance of being flexible and adapting in combat or the magic user who might have to spin spells out of nothingness and adapt to to every ongoing situation um by doing that you can inject the character with more humanity Humanity and also inject the culture that you're representing and the philosophy with much more depth, I think. Yeah, and I think certainly is is a very good point to make that, you know, while we are talking about homebrewing Asia and world building, we are also talking about characters, like the NPCs as well, because we don't want them to be like these stereotypes. We don't want the to use these really easy indicators that, oh, this is Bruce Lee because they're wearing a yellow jumpsuit. Um no, they are more than that. Honestly, if I were to do a Bruce Lee character, I I would honestly have it like you could go like I mean this is where D and D kind of falls short, right? I can do like a, a monk or a fighter, but I want them to have traveled because I want them to learn all of these different styles, right? And I want them to then maybe come back home or maybe they're they're still in like the West, like like Bruce Lee when he went to San Francisco, right? And Maybe they're starting their own school and they have to, within this little Chinatown community, deal with, you know, a connection and a tradition, right? A connection to their home culture and how they are representing that in this new land, Mm -hmm. I think is is a really compelling, not only character, but also micro setting as well. You can um, you can often zero in on like when trying to flesh out an NPC like this like the Bruce Lee one you can, you can often zero in on their connections with family their connections with their immediate surroundings and mm-hmm. their connections with the you know the culture they were either born into or the one that they have adopted over time um, and those are sort of good good uh, points to start out your 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 fleshing out of this character. Yeah, and I think this also relates to like a question that we had from one of our patrons uh, and one of our Discord mods, Kat, who asked, do you think there's a sweet spot or a secret recipe uh, to have your homebrew fantasy setting be both clearly evocative of the place or culture you're using as inspiration and uniquely its own thing? For example, like X percentage of X uh, uh, of elements brought over exactly as they really existed a percentage of Y elements inspired by or like seen from a different perspective or, you know, another percentage of Z of elements that are like completely made up. Like, is there a formula? The answer is no. The an- there is no formula, right? I think Jer- to Jeremy's point of like characterize, not characterize, caricature. It's tough to say. It's very tough to say. It's tough to say. Characterize not caricaturize um, <laughs> by humanizing the culture by sort of um, 
you know, making sure these characters are fully fleshed out, right, and not defined by stereotypes. Or Agatha's um, very because Agatha, you're like a story gamer, right? You love story games, right? Like finding something that you, as the creator and your table, can relate to, so that it essentially forces you to bring humanity into your game. And like Jeremy said, when you bring humanity into your game, into your creations, when you humanize the culture you're incorporating, you ultimately create something that is a little bit more authentic, right? Or at least your efforts are a lot more genuine and authentic. Uh, for me, a big one, and this is, I guess, from more uh, from more technical perspective, because Kat's question was like technically technical, um, is you don't want to, in the context of China, depending on who you are from a scholarly perspective, like the first dynasty in China could either be the Xia dynasty, if you, you know, like a Western scholar, or if you're a Chinese scholar, like if you're, if you're a Chinese scholar, you'd say it's the Xia dynasty, which is like, you know, like 2000 BC or slightly or like later um, or earlier, or you could say it's the Shang dynasty at like 1600 BC, right? Um, that was a really long time ago. And that was during the Bronze Age. And during the Bronze Age in China, their material culture, their customs, their languages, like, were fundamentally different from what you see in, like, Margrave, the game that Jeremy and I worked on, where we're looking at, like, Qing Dynasty and, like, Jin Dynasty, right? We're looking at, like, the Banner Clans. Like, they are two very, very different points in China's history. They're... Like, Agatha, you had put together, like, elements of Chinese culture to include in a setting. You kind of talked about material, like, cultural, like, celebrations, practice, right? Um, Spiritual and linguistic. Um, But on top of that, you want to situate your creation and your inspirations for your creation on a specific time period. Because you don't want to generalize an entire region of the world say China, with its modern political boundaries, you don't want to generalize what is essentially, you know, over 4,000 years of dynastic history. Like, how do you do that? And my tip from like a technical perspective would be like Agatha, you know, find something that resonates with you, but also find a specific time period that resonates with you. If you want to do something about war, the Three Kingdoms is very well documented. There is so much information out there about the material culture, the weapons, the politics, right? You could easily, you know, incorporate that into a fantasy setting. Um, you could even do the, the Warring States, which is another sort of like bloody period in China's history where China was divided into all of these different kingdoms or states. Uh, my home game and the campaign setting that, you know, I'm writing, the one that we're probably going to use for Wandering Blades on Asians Represent is inspired by the UA state, which is a tiny little state in sort of like central eastern China around Zhejiang province. And they were very culturally distinct from a lot of the other states. They were the only state that had a tradition of sword smithing. They were the only ones who had a tradition of sword naming. Um, And they had a poorly documented history. Um, because they were not the winners. Uh, Because after the Warring States, many people know the UA state is not the one that unified all of China. It was the Qin. And so the UA basically disappeared, and a lot of people don't know about them. 
And for me, I really liked that. I gravitated towards the swords. I gravitated towards the sword making. And so in my campaign setting, it's a sword culture where bladesmithing is the highest art form. And swordsmiths are more respected than some political officials because of their art. And swords are not only a symbol of your status, um, but also deeply connected to who you are and the mythic history of this land, um, which actually neighbors the land of our previous Dungeons and Dungeons uh, campaign. Um, so for me, I latched on to a particular period in China's history, uh, the Warring States period. I narrowed it down to a particular geographic region. Um, and then I happened to pick one that I not only really related to and really was interested in, but also one that was poorly documented. So to Kat's question about sort of like the recipe for your homebrew, I picked one that gave me a lot of freedom to make things up because there wasn't a lot of information to work with. Um, and so I kind of went that route because I wanted to have more freedom and I wanted to basically take one ingredient, swords, and build on that. Um, but there are no sort of like guns in the sense of like later Chinese history. There aren't sort of these state exams like Agatha you were talking about. Um, they Their political system is very different. There is no emperor because the emperor didn't exist then. The emperor came after the Qin sort of unified all of China. So there is no emperor. So in mind, there are kings. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the approach I'd take. That would be like the recommendation I give to folks who are doing any sort of homebrew world building based on a real life culture or based on a real life part of the world. It's narrow down your focus. Because if you don't narrow down your focus, you're just creating one giant stereotype of like, Let's do Japan. Samurais. Like there were parts of Japan's history where there were no samurai. Or how the samurai functioned in society differed and evolved over time. Right? So if you're going to do Japan, and we're going to do a whole episode on homebrewing Asia, fantasy Japan, we're going to learn more about that there. But yeah, that, that's my roundabout answer to, to that question. I know, Jeremy, you were going to say something. I, I was just saying you... You know, people are always talking about, um, I want to make Fantasy China, Fantasy Japan, whatever. Just start start looking, start even smaller. Like, uh, we talked about making an NPC, that's Bruce Lee. Like, if you're, if you're designing a setting for your game, look at examples in mythology, and maybe there's, like, a Chinese mythological deity that uh, you're, you, you feel drawn to. Start with that. Like, just make a, a deity in your game or a small group of people that might worship this individual and explore that. For example, if I wanted to, like, put, like, if I wanted to represent Mazu, like, the, the Chinese god of the sea, like, and, like, inf influence, throw influence from, like, how people worship her in Taiwan into my fantasy game, I would, you know, start with... You know, how do people on the sea, you know, visit temples and, you know, bye-bye, ma-mazu, like in Chinese culture? How do they, like, burn incense and how do they worship this deity? How might sailors, you know, um, 
pray to her when they're on a difficult voyage? Start with those little questions. Then eventually, once you go from there, uh, pretty soon you'll have an entire, you know, uh, village that worships this goddess of the sea. And you can explore how to represent, you know, the, those Chinese connections in, in the span of like a couple people and a couple villagers and then a tradition of sailing. And then all of a sudden you've got a very fleshed out segment that you could easily interject into like your pirate campaign or, or any campaign that takes place. It's a micro setting. Yeah. It's micro a micro setting. setting. Yeah. Start, start small. Start small and then slowly flesh out. You guys said it on a previous episode of Asians. The OSR episode. OSR episode. Uh, or actually, I think it might have been another one. But you said, Daniel, start by building a city. Like it, it, don't don't yes, try yeah. a village don't or something like that. Don't try to I, remake Karator. Just make a city or even a village or a town or a neighborhood. Um, I had a cool idea, actually, when you were talking about this, like, you know, see god worshiping like village and you were like well how do they burn incense or what do they do well like how do they where are their shrines had my the first idea that popped into my mind and i might incorporate this into my stuff i don't know um is what if their shrines or places of worship were dependent on the tides Mm -hmm. and so when the tides receded um they would actually be able to go and worship and your adventure hook is the tides haven't receded in however many months and they can't go and bring an offering to the God. And there is something that is preventing the tides from receding and the villagers fear that the God will think they have forsaken her. This also gives you a really easy point to start researching. If, if you're not familiar, Super easy. yeah, you just look up Mazu or, or any other, we're talking about her, but any, any other goddess or, you know, you could use a mo- mythological monster or something like that. And you could go from there. It's an easy point to start fleshing out your uh, fantasy China or any fantasy setting with authenticity, with humanity, and also with, with care. Because This is literally, I just realized this. I don't know if you were going to say this, Agatha. This is literally how we did the redacted project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, is. it is. Based on the C. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's so much easier than just immediately trying to jump in and make your, you know, fantasy version of Japan with samurai. I mean, if you want to do something with samurai, you know, hone it, like start with the idea of, a, start with a single samurai Can NPC. I? What does it mean to be a warrior serving in this feudal system? Like, well, what does that actually mean? Start small. I have a cool one, big. actually, that, that's related to Japan. And I want to hear more from Agatha, but I, I got to talk about this now because it relates to this particular point in the conversation. There's an anime out now, an anime adaptation now, but Hell's Paradise. Mm. I don't know if any of you have heard of this or read it or watched the anime yet, but I, one of my favorite manga series of all time. And the reason why is not only is it beautifully illustrated and the story is very cool, but it's rooted in both the Japanese and Chinese perceptions of one mythological location, which I think is very cool. Um, in it, there's like the uh, Penglai, like the immortal mountains in Chinese mythology. Like there's a series of islands and it's where all these like demigods essentially live. And it's literally about a group of death row convicts from Japan who are sent to this island to try to find what is the elixir of life. And when they go to the island, they realize that it's inhabited by all of these Taoist hermits who are studying immortality and have a Chinese master from the time of the Qin dynasty who was sent out by 
the first emperor to search for immortality. And it's this really cool story about how these Japanese characters are perceiving of a land that is not only in Japanese mythology, but also Chinese mythology, and how they encounter Chinese characters and are forced to essentially examine different perspectives of like Tao. Very, very cool um, from a world building perspective, because this is this blending of cultures in a very respectful way and in a way that makes sense, which you do not see in a lot of RPGs because like we've talked about earlier, they focus on the sort of Western white perspective, right? They focus on one perspective, which makes everything else foreign and exotic. And they don't actually go and try to view a culture or a source of inspiration from the perspective of the actual local or the perspective of that person's culture, which is why I think Hell's Paradise succeeds so much and where books like Oriental Adventures and Caratour uh, fail because they are written from this white perspective and this habit of whiteness and inserting whiteness, not only not in like representation, but white perspective over Asia, not an Asian perspective. Um, one of uh, the comments in the chat is, I think it's great. It's from uh, Sarah Sinian. Sorry if I'm great, awesome. great artist. Uh, sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right, but I love what they said, which is that uh, the way to add a way of adding authenticity um, is uh, to read stories by the cultures and people who uh, made it and learn the tropes and archetypes and how they interact with each other in practice. I I really like that because there are certain aspects um, of a culture that you don't really notice until you read their stories and the way that they kind of just they they established a a norm or like a normal way of being that you can't know until you see it in action um so 100 percent um i kind of want to circle back to specifically like china or like fantasy china Mm -hmm. um like what do we think are some great um cultural touchstones i guess is a way is a way to put it um that like is more particular like particularly chinese Uh, oh yeah we did like a whole episode on this like episode 37 uh on face right the i i mean honor is a really good example like to to go to um uh the comment from our chat like yeah it's important to kind of see how cultural elements interact in practice because if you're looking at it from like a like a very surface level when you think about face, you're like, oh, it's like honor. And then that's where you bring in samurai and these like Western perspectives of honor. But when you kind of dive deeper and understand how, you know, families are structured in China and how people use these sort of unwritten rules of a face to interact with one another on a social level, but also on like an economic and material level, you get something far more interesting. And like the concept of face like Mianzi, is like unique to China. There really isn't anything like that 
um, in the way it's woven into daily life and social interaction, there really isn't like that anywhere else in the world. I just feel like there are a lot of equivalents uh, that are like they are but that different. triad, but that triad of mm. perception soliciting power, but also showing power and owing power to others. Right. Like there are ways of aggrandizing wealth and showing social power. We see it in a lot of like indigenous cultures here. Um, but the way it's codified in China is is really unique. Like how strongly it's codified. Yeah. The concept of means as a currency, a social currency. Yes, as a currency. Um, I So I feel like that's one of the things that is, yeah, would be good to include if you feel like you have a good grasp of it. Because it is, like, it's hard even for us to explain. So I can understand if it's hard to under, understand, like, from an outside perspective. But, yeah, that I think is one of the things that, I would include in a what about food China yeah yeah what about food like Jeremy your your point of like starting small and Agatha your point of like finding something you can relate to have you ever just gone to a restaurant and eat like eaten a dish that just changed your life that was like this is so different from anything else I've ever eaten like I think that is a really great gateway into China for people when you think about food, because not only and this, there was actually a question here uh, from one of our patrons. Like, well, one is like most honorable, most honorable asked, like with a joke question: Will the noodle recipe use more ingredients than Caratour noodles? Um, but in their serious question, in your eyes, what role does food play in home brewing a fantasy setting? And to Jeremy's initial point, food could literally be your starting point, right? Because the ingredients you use dictate the geography or it could dictate your trade relationships with others like food also has symbolic meaning the dishes that you use the cutlery that you use how you like you know if you're if you're chinese and you have your bowl of rice you don't stick your chopsticks in the rice right because it looks like incense and it's like oh it's associated with death um there's a lot you can do with food if you just start there i think how you describe food is very interesting i mean in a lot of games that I've run of uh, D&D and Pathfinder, I have a habit of saying that potions of healing uh, taste sort of like, uh, what's it called? Pipa uh, Gao, the Chinese medicine that tastes like cough syrup. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I, I, well, nice. only when I'm around Asian people who know what it is, I tend to revert to that description. When I'm around people that don't know what it is, I, I usually relate to something else. I say it tastes like Pepto-Bismol or something. But there I am kind of uh, characterizing a, a common you know beverage um, and trying to bring out a sensation of what the flavor might be, what the sensation of drinking it might might be like for someone. And, and you can do that with all sorts of food because that's an easy way to evoke that humanity and that authenticity that we talk about. I mean, if you're going to have your characters uh, sit down to eat something like dim sum, like dim sum is like a four-hour thing in, in, in parts of China, um, go through the motions of describing what each dish is and the, the start with this, the, you know, the four senses, the the smell, the taste, the feel, the texture, and talk about, you know, how these things might um, 
influence your 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 playable characters at the gaming table and 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 if you're going to be developing rules based around food and mechanics you know i think all games should probably have mechanics based around food because it's just fun then that's something to to think about you know uh, and any kid that's that's had to drink you know pipacao as a child you know and and kind of uh, gags at the taste of it knows that your parents tell you it's really good for you um, and it'll cure your cough but it doesn't go down smooth so maybe you want to make something that tastes like that um and cures some condition your character might have, but also inflicts some some other sort of. It's like of a really powerful yeah, healing powerful potion, healing but you have potion. to roll like a save. Yeah, but to you got to roll. Like, you have to roll something. something, and and if you don't, then you're sickened, and you have this feeling of revulsion that sticks with you uh, every time you drink it in the future. So yeah, just as just as we talked about starting small with a village or starting small with a deity or, or a monster, start small with a food that you're really interested in. If you want to put Charsilfan in your game, investigate the <laughs> history of Charsilfan yeah. and like, what does it mean to have this this pork that you know is is eaten on top of rice? You know what 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 does it mean to the person who makes it? What does it mean to the person who eats it? The NPC that eats it at the table. Why does this NPC that you know has come back from a war, aka like Daniel, why does he want to eat Charsilfan? Is his first meal yeah yeah i love that yeah and i mean and yeah like that also really goes into like why is it prepared this way like what what is this kind of like like the way that it's preserved uh in this time um that like what kind of spices do they have available in order to preserve it that way like that's all super interesting i also feel like just in general having food be a focus when you're talking about fantasy china is great because i think there is like there's this kind of there's a sense of like national pride in how obsessed uh chinese people are with food uh that i have observed uh online um and the things that i've read like there this is a part of like at least the modern chinese identity so i feel like that in general if you want to talk about evoking uh china in your fantasy world building i think food is a great idea outside of all of the other like really evocative like starting points and also the way that you can relate um because everyone needs to eat uh so (laughs) food it's also like it's also like deeply like experiential like you can if you start with food you could literally your research could be you and your like table or you and the team of writers go out and just have a meal. Oh my gosh. Right? Y'all are I go out and have a meal. I played a uh I played a Call of Cthulhu character named Benny Wong who uh, grew up in racist 1920s Boston Chinatown and was like solving Cthulhu mysteries with with his white friends who were pretty racist <laughs> towards him but he would um, his he worked at a Chinese restaurant and his little sister would always make a uh, bow for everyone and so you'd have this like party like fighting eldritch monsters but everybody would be eating bow afterwards to relax and it just became a thing after we did after every single mission and it added such it, it just it, it that was the um, mode of relaxation for the group nice. of investigators, and it added such a powerful moment when, in order to like calm down another character, my my player uh, Benny, he pulls out a bow. It's like here, take this. <laughs> It'll calm you down. And, it. and and I think those moments are easy ones to replicate when you focus on something like food. Hundred percent. Like I played at the start of the pandemic. I played D anD D for the first time with my family. And my mom, when we were playing, we played the um, the Frozen Sick, the Wild Mount adventure, and my mom played a cleric. And I asked 
like when she wanted to heal, I was like, how do you do it? And she's like, she's like, I, I pull up my pot and I start making kanji. And this one has goji berries in it because it has all this like good stuff in it. I was like, cool. Then that became her thing. She literally just became the Asian mom who just cooked for everyone to heal them. And even though they weren't in like a fantasy Asia, my mom basically brought like our culture into her character. Um, and it was like super cute. But I, I think food just like on a, if we're going to talk about world building is so important because if you look at China, China has these like these eight really distinct culinary traditions and each one has its own sort of like palate, but also has its own key ingredients. Some are like seafood based. Like if you think about the kinds of Chinese foods that are really common in North America, you think about like, you know, Guangdong, like Cantonese cuisine, right? And it's the Chinese food that most people know in North America, but there are so many others. If you go to like Sichuan and it's like that numbing spice, right? It's so different. And the idea of like, oh, I'm going to, the experience of eating is associated with this sort of tingling sensation. And that itself could be magical. But also if that you're going to center your cuisine around that, we have to think, well, how are the people growing these peppers? And in your fantasy world, are these peppers a high value material? Are they like a currency, you know, in a sense? Um, are they coveted? Are there different kinds of peppers? Are there literally like pepper lords who own these like pepper plantations and they grow the best pepper, the best numbing sensation? Like are, are the chefs in your land regarded above the, the swordsmiths in my land? Um, I think that could be super interesting. But also even at its simplest level, the idea of rice, right? When people think of Chinese food, what do they think of? They think of noodles and they think of rice. But historically, not all Chinese people ate rice, right? Rice can only grow in certain parts of China. And in the north, there's, there are, there's this Lus plateau where rice can't grow and they farm millet instead. And so their cuisine is different. Their, their agriculture is different. They don't have rice patties. So now we're thinking about the visual of this village. We understand the food that they eat. We understand maybe there are certain social dynamics associated with certain ingredients. And now we have a visual of what their farming techniques look like, right? Do they have rice patties or are they farming on the plateau for these cereal grains? And I, and I think that to both of your points is a really interesting way of building out the details, right? We talked about what they, what the people eat and what you might be eating with your friends or, or coworkers on a project. Now we're talking about what are the ingredients and what are the, maybe the social dynamics associated with these ingredients. And then if all these ingredients are produced locally, what does that look like? And I think you immediately have an entire micro setting what if these peppers are so volatile that it takes a certain degree of skill to harvest them or a certain tool well now you have somebody who manufactures them and maybe there is a certain material or a certain type of metal or a certain type of magic that is required to even harvest these things and now we're just building up on this setting in a really easy way that is honestly just making us all really hungry 
and I'm just really hungry. <laughs> I think I'm uh, very I, you know, hungry now too. I, I I think talking about food really hits home the fact that China is just so big. I mean, it's so much bigger than what a lot of people in North America and Western Europe might think of. You know, you have from from Xinjiang to like Harbin to to you know Guangdong. It's it cuisines are entirely different, and and that kind of takes me to another thing I like to harp on when when d- delving into a fantasy setting influenced by China. I like to delve on the idea of language and the difference in dialects of Chinese because. Um, you know, only recently was there like a, uh, you know, Putonghua, like Mandarin Chinese, the, the, the sort of lingua franca that people use to speak with each other. And it's, it's very interesting to delve into the history of language and to explore that from the same perspective that we use to explore food and that we use to explore like mythology. You know, maybe people in the north in your fantasy setting, maybe they speak with, you know, the harsh tones of like uh, th- that might be reminiscent to, you know, someone from northern China or something like that. Maybe people in the south, they, they have re- retroflexes that are that are similar to, to folks from Taiwan. You know, uh, if if you're playing with a group of Chinese people, you can do fun things like that, which is, you know, what, what we sort of do in our Pathfinder game, Daniel. But you can play with or, you, our you, Pathfinder <laughs> game could never yeah, be streamed. It, it can never be streamed. <laughs> it could never be streamed. You can play with interesting ideas and language. Like, why do people? in the south why do they say why can't they say you know why um uh, you know how did language evolve over time and are you know can one person be understood by another how would a conversation between two npcs uh play out and even if you know you don't speak chinese or aren't familiar with chinese you can still understand the concept of dialects and accents what does a different accent represent in the eyes of one character versus another what does the uh, a so-called educated person sound like versus someone who 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 comes from you know a countryside rural setting and once you start tackling those questions you can you can build a more fleshed out world in my opinion yeah yeah see that's something that i personally would avoid because my chinese is so bad I would feel like I am producing something inauthentic. Well, and also, how does a member of the diaspora, like a non-player character or a player character who is entering into this fantasy version of China, how might they communicate? Maybe they speak a form of the language that sounds a little old because they learned it from their grandparents um, and their, you know, their uh, their intonations or their expressions are a little bit out of date. How might a shopkeeper react to you going in and speaking the native language when you speak it and your character is like, what, in their 20s, but you speak it like a 70-year-old? That, that's an interest. That's a really great... That is interesting. That's a very great, ex- fun example for role-playing right there. Maybe they'll give you a discount because they remind you of their uh, grandparents. I think this really also goes into how you are portraying your NPCs, right? Mm-hmm. Because we, you know, when you think about how NPCs are portrayed in D anD D, it's like, okay, here's their stats and a little bit of a description of them and their abilities. It's really mechanically focused, right? There is there is narrative, but I wonder if you were to do a uh, like a Chinese campaign setting, what elements, like non mechanical elements, f- would you communicate to the reader about an NPC? Lang- I know well, this isn't a question we yeah. listed. For, for, like, for me, it would be would, for me it would be language. Like I would break it down into like what sort of dialects do they speak, and I would have a page of lore being like, what do these dialects, you know, 
where are they spoken? What's the history behind them? What might so how, how, each NPC yeah. would have like a dialect, like a field? Yeah, like a like, like a field for dialect. Or are they able to communicate in the you know the common tongue that that uh, RPGs so often like to put as an easy way to say, oh, your your character can talk with this. Like language is very underplayed in most role. So you'd games. go in like the nitty gritties of like different dialects I probably for these would. NPCs. Yeah, I, I probably, so that's one thing. I, I probably do that personally. What about you, Agatha? What would you put in like a narrative detail for an NPC I'm not, if you were to do a Chinese campaign setting? I'm not sure yet. Uh, come back to me. What about you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So this is something that I'm like slowly working on. So my I have a format for NPCs. I don't like to put stats because I don't track HP. Um, I don't like to put stats. But what I put is I use appearance, voice, morality, motivations, and secrets. Mm-hmm. That's what I put for all of my NPCs. So any NPC that I put effort into actually writing up has details on all of the, for all of those fields. But if I were to make something like Chinese, for me, because I would feel, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but less confident in writing like the lower page and all the dialects in their voice or how they would speak, I would write about... You know, they speak with like a country accent, but they live in a city or they use a lot of slang. And I would kind of bring my own experiences with with Chinese, having like studied like Mandarin, going to Beijing and being like, oh, I'm good here. And then going anywhere else and being like, I don't know what you're saying. Um, And kind of making that more, I guess, less... I don't want to say crunchy. Like I don't think your answer is crunchy, Jeremy. I, but my, I would say I would not leave it's, room for yeah. more interpretation to a non-Chinese speaker. I mean, I think one way to go is full-on crunch, which could be fun. Like I, I would, I would appreciate that. But I think at least you know, uh, detailing you know um, some of the flares of, for example, certain dialects and um, some of the regions where they might be spoken um, is yeah. is a good way to start. You know, it's a good way or to like a, instantly ingratiate groups of npcs with player characters who might speak those same dialects like if i if or even I, like keywords for dialects so you could be like the tone of this dialect yeah versus like you know exactly you could be like this one is more aggressive or this, they speak faster this, this or leads they... to very interesting interactions i mean when i when i first learned chinese i i primarily learned at university so i had the uh, accent of like a like a like a beijinger like a northerner and then when i went to taiwan and had to do a visa run i did a visa uh, i got my visa in singapore and the lady asked me why i spoke like i was from the mainland and that, that's always in that's always a back and forth question a back and forth interaction you have to make when you ex- you end up explaining your own history just through um, these interactions that display how you talk. Yeah. I really like Do you have an that. answer yet, Agatha? I, I do really like the dialect uh, um, detail. I, I think like I want to like second that as a cool idea. I think another um, background detail that I would include is like family situation um so like Ooh. for example like are are they married or unmarried um do they come like are are they are they orphaned or like what kind of a family background they have how or like like is like is their father dead like that kind of a thing 
because that affects so many different aspects of you know a person's life i like that what would be the one word that you would use would it be like family status would it be position in the family i would put family familial situation or like family situation or something like that um, I, that's not a great word <laughs> but i would go along it's a tough one i get what you're vibe. saying though but you're so it would be because i think we should come up with this right right here because this is something that we could use for the stuff that we're going to do. Ancients represent, right? Yeah. So we have dialect. Like if we do wandering blades, we should 100% start doing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, so we have dialect. We have, honestly, like it could be re- family relationships. What do you think about that? I feel like family relationships imply that it's like, it's talking more about like, oh, like I'm closer with my brother than my sister, you know? Mm. But this is more like, like, what is your, I guess maybe family background, is that? Eisen in the chat mentioned, because we're talking about Confucianism, and said familial standing is a suggestion. Ooh, I, I think, I think you, I, Yeah, I think I you, maybe, yeah, like you might need some context, you know, on family structure in your setting and and what things are or what what things are expected among certain families but i th- i think it's very interesting to delve into that does a person you know ha- has a person rejected you know their 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 family because they didn't necessarily you know like like many m- many chinese children did not agree with their parents like like that, yeah. that, that that's a very interesting plot point right there yeah or um, like so yeah if like familiar standing is like oh like sent to their aunt and uncle's place because their parents couldn't afford to raise them. That's like a very interesting thing. It, like you immediately know a lot about, or you can as- start thinking about how they may act or like the things that they mm. may care about um, just based on. Gen- I would put like, <laughs> I, I would put, put first I, son, first son. Yeah. I would put this. Here's what I would put level of generational trauma. <laughs> like that. that's what I would put. <laughs> so there's a game. So there's actually a game that, Already kind of does something like this, but it's not Asian. Um, it's called um, Harn Master. Uh, it's a really, really cool RPG, um, but a part of character creation. Um, you there are a ton of optional rules. Like you could roll to be like, oh, what yeah, STIs yeah. do I have? I, I remember. I remember you telling me about this thing. <laughs> what STIs yeah. do I have? And all this weird stuff. But there is a, a part where you actually determine your birth attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, not only do you determine like your culture, culture is codified in this. So you have a culture, they do have species, you have a birth date, your sign, like your Zodiac. Like that could be cool depending on Zodiac, like, Zodiac might be interesting. Zodiac would be cool. Uh, I think and, that'd be and, neat. and blood type, if like, we want to go in that direction. I mean, Japan always lists blood type. Japan and Korea, lots of importance on blood yeah. type if you want to get into that. So I think like um, star sign mm-hmm. or I guess that's not star sign wouldn't be a probably Zodiac sign. Um, I don't or get something the equivalent. Zodiac thing because like Zodiac is by year. It's no, I, I'm thinking what I'm thinking You're of thinking... Agatha is I'm not thinking so much of Zodiac necessarily. What I had in my mind is you know when they analyze the characters of your Chinese name along with the time when you were born and then tell you basically <gasps> oh! your char- your personality traits. Your what, personality. What is that but called? They, what, but what, those what, are the, what's those that called are the... Chinese? I forget. 
I'm looking for the looking into the chat. It's but are you talking Eisen, about like Eisen your bots? Help us out. T- like your yeah, bots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Birth pillars. Birth that... pillars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Zodiac, Zodiac is sort of like a fraction of that. Like if, if it's you a cor- fraction if you of correspond it. it with like the star signs, but basically where they take the characters in your name, um, and they uh, take the time you were born, and they ask you a bunch of questions, and they compare this information with information that's been collected throughout history, and then sort of tell you the general trends of what your personality is and essentially what your future is. It's a kind of fortune telling, but it's so in-depth yeah, and like so interesting. Pillars of Destiny. Yeah, Pillars Ooh, of the Destiny. That is such a good name. Pillars of Destiny. Oh that, my goodness. Oh, that could be... Right there. Oh, let's that trademark that. Great. Yeah. TTRPG Liana, Liana, right Valorous Games. Let's do it. Pillars <laughs> of Destiny. Oh my Pillars a, of Destiny. A, a Chinese-themed TTRPG. Um, but then I, I would also add in... So in Hard Master, another thing they do is there is literally... A family development. So you roll for your sibling rank, your parental relationship. So you could be like, I roll and I am literally the youngest child. Or I can be like, I am fostered. Um, you can even roll to the degree of estrangement you are from your family in Harnmaster. It's like it's a, it's a, it's a lot of crunch. Um, but there are games that think about this, but they're not necessarily Chinese. So right now we have dialect, familial standing, Pillar of Destiny. God, that's cool. That's so cool. Um, I love that name. <laughs> I honestly, I feel like. Oh, what else would we add? I don't want to do like. You could literally do like rank in society. Well, you could. You um, you could also just do name like related to pillars of death or birth pillars. You could just do the name. Like if you have uh, a yeah. if a character's name, and like, you just have a little yeah. table. What what, little what, table. what might their name represent? I mean the 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 if you're dealing with Chinese characters, like, why did your parents give you this name? Or why did you choose this name for, name for yourself? Like, my mom has a Chinese name that is is decidedly, un, quote-unquote, unfeminine because her father did not want daughters. He wanted sons. And he named all of the girls in the family very masculine names um, to represent this, for better or for worse. So when people hear my mother's name, they're like, oh, that's interesting. It stands out in their mind. There you go. That that's an interesting flair you could you to, could insert into your game. I would have to look into this more, but I know that within Chinese families there is a naming pattern, like mm-hmm. a convention. Um, I feel like that could be something you could work into it. Or if um, or if you're a f- or if you're a, like a diaspora person, like do do you have a a, a a foreign name that's been transliterated and somehow sounds different. Oh. Like if you take Jeremy and make it Jelumi or something like that, like, you know, that, that sounds a little, uh, a little funny, <laughs> but it's a name. Um, and what, what, yeah. what, what does that mean? What are the, what are the connotations? You know, I, my, my, so, my name is not Jelumi. It's, but so, but yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're, so we've got three things. So let's say the person is looking at the book of whatever RPG it is, Wandering Bites, um, whatever it is, and they see, okay, these are my characters, this NPC, they have a dialect, a familial standing, a pillar of destiny. Is there anything else that we would want to communicate to the reader, to the GM, so that they can then roleplay this character? We have how they sound, right? Because we've talked about their dialect and how that can be codified in the game. In like Even using keywords, you could be like, this dialect has these keywords, right? To kind of, as a quick reference, we have their familial standing to talk about their relationship within their family and society in general, right? We have their pillar of destiny, which is more spiritual, right, and related to divination. But what else would be needed 
to help the gameplay experience um. and make it more Chinese. Oh, I was, I, I felt like I, I would just put like, in general, for NPC creation, I would put like, what do they want and why can't they get it? Just yeah, like needs that sort of thing, like that that generic stuff. Yeah, but favorite food. I, uh, like I, that. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like, um, I mean, th- this is not really Chinese, but I always like it when um, when. Uh, in like fighting games when they're introducing a character and they always have like hobbies like in street fighter yeah, in, that's, in, in, that's what i was going with street, street food in street fighter 6 like uh what, what's the hobby of like the new chinese dude jamie it's like isn't it like like drunk kung fu or something like that or like b-boying or something like yeah it's you like, know that's what fun. would you know it'd be cool so i've recently started doing a, a family uh history with ah. my, my dad yeah his jamie the new chinese character in three first six his hobbies are well there are two other characters um uh oh no they they use hates and likes he hates getting oh, hates he, and he likes. hates getting lectured and he hates arrogance which is interesting he likes yun and yang who are two other characters he likes dancing and his grandmother oh so that's very interesting i like hates and, and likes. he's like he, he's cool. like a you know he's like a, a drunken kung fu b-boy and it's very interesting he has a you already know that he has a connection with his grandfather he has a connection with two other characters in the lore who are like established martial artists um and he hates getting lectured and he hates arrogance so we have very simple character traits boiled down to a few words i thought i thought of another one and like nike stem mentioned family nickname in the chat i've been doing this like I made a family database and I'm going through like our like traditional Chinese, like, like family tree with my dad and my grandpa getting everything translated is really cool. But one thing I learned is that, you know, you have a birth name, a working name and a married name. Mm -hmm. And so NPCs in this world might have multiple names. And I think that could be something very interesting. Um, Because then you could have other NPCs address them differently and have the players kind of see how this works. And if you're a player, maybe you have multiple names too. Yeah, I mean, I think it, this was mentioned, I don't remember who mentioned it in the chat. Uh, oh, it was Leechy Musings. Uh, like, in the Han through Six Dynasties, there's the Zi, which is like, <laughs> that's the name. I don't remember how it works anymore. Like, it's the name that your friends would call you versus like your actual like official name. Like you could also just have something like that. Like the, the name that those who are close to you would call you, I guess like a nickname, but it's not a nickname because it's more official than quite a nickname. So yeah, it, it could be a, um, you have to find a word to describe a nickname, but only to those who are close to you, like a codified nickname. But that is also something that is like, sort of like associated with Chinese culture. Um, I think we'd also do our audience a disservice if we didn't talk about resources, because I think we could go, we could probably go all day talking about this stuff. And I'm very curious to see where this will go with the next one, because I think we have a format, right? This one very much talked about, you know, the overarching themes of like, we want to break away from this habit of whiteness, right? We talked about food, right? We talked about language. And I think framing it around like an NPC is really interesting um, and how an NPC would be basically presented to the reader or to the audience. I would love to know because we talked about, you know, really writing about what you know, 
But what if somebody goes and answers the question of, this is why I want to use China as my source of inspiration, and they're not Chinese. And they think about, okay, well, what is my entry point? Maybe it is food. Maybe it isn't. Maybe they've found something like the state exams, Agatha, like that you mentioned, that is something they can relate to. And now they want to build off of that. Where can they go for research? What are some sources of inspiration um, that you would recommend, like you too would recommend? Wikipedia, bro. Wikipedia. It's a great I mean, starting Wik- point. It is a great it's starting, a starting point. point. I completely agree. I mean, I always think that it's um, good to delve into um, resources that were written by the or, or created by the people of that culture. Do, don't necessarily delve into just you know like the the stuff written by like the white guys who the China watchers who who have studied China. Like if, if you're if you're creating uh, monsters influenced by China, then take a look at the classic of Mountain and Seas, which I know Daniel is a massive fan of. Like that's essentially a Chinese bestiary. Um, the Shanghai Jing. Yeah, there you go. That is it. Literally called a Chinese bestiary. Incredibly weird book. Just literally list, very weird listing book. off the names of places and the strange monsters that dwell in these I'm places. Just gonna, I just opened it. It up we have uh the people with crossed shins mm-hmm. the land of the people with crossed shins lies farther east of the land of the people with perforated chests mm-hmm. the people have crossed shins that's it there's there's so much in there that can be used as inspiration so i think going to these primary sources whether they're mythology whether they're um uh, sort of like quasi-historical texts like the Shanghai Jing are, is, is very valuable. Or, or you could start with, you know, um, you could start with the Chinese classics, like, you know, the Journey to the West, Romans of the Three Kingdoms, Dream of the Red Chamber. Those, those are great places to start. You don't have to go as far back as that, but if you are interested in, um, for example, China, and your only reference is, I don't know, well, well, why, why would someone be interested in China from the... From food, food, maybe, maybe, maybe like Wuxia. Wuxia, yeah. I, I would encourage you guys to go a little bit further back and to delve into, okay, wh- what are the connotations of Wuxia? Where did Wuxia come from? Where, where did this idea, this image of like the Chinese, the, 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 um, the, the Chinese fantasy first stem from? And then kind of investigate the, the sources that have influenced it. Similar to how we all understand that, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons is influenced by a variety of things. You know, Tolkien, pulp fantasy, um, um, you know, the myths of Western Conan. Europe, Conan, King Arthur stories, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Eisen mentioned in the chat that another Chinese bestiary could be Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio, which is more. I was literally just about to mention that. It's so cool. And you can get, you can find all of the stories translated in English for free on Gutenberg. Because mm-hmm. um, it's an anthology of weird tales. Some of them are like only a paragraph um, from the Qing Dynasty. It's super cool and really weird. There's like one of the stories is about like body parts falling from the sky. Uh, another is about like body parts showing up in the walls of an yeah, inn. Yeah, I love and that And these one. travelers get all like, oh, what the fuck? And they start stabbing them and they just basically get like, I think they get like church for murder or something. Um, but they have these like weird supernatural encounters um, that don't have that don't often have a resolution. Um, very interesting stuff. Yeah, that's another one I would recommend. Honestly, if you like supernatural stuff, um, I would go like Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. I would go with the Shanghai Jing because there's just so much strange and interesting stuff there that you could just make as part of the truth of the world. Um, I would also, honestly, I like how Agatha said Wikipedia 
because when you go to Wikipedia, I love to go and look at the references at the bottom because you can often find scholarly resources. Now, not everyone has access to like a university or college library to get your scholarly resources for free, but you can often find the authors. And as a former scholar who has published scholarly resources, scholars don't get paid for that. Like if you go and publish in a scientific journal, like I have a couple of times, I didn't get paid for that. I had to pay to do it. Um, and people love it when you reach out and show genuine interest in their work. And for me, when I was doing research on the UA state, there aren't a lot of English language resources, particularly around swords. And I found that there was only one scholar who had done work on it. And her entire dissertation was on translating basically the period history book on the UA. And she wrote a whole chapter about the swords. And the book was like 200 USD if I wanted to get a print copy of her thesis. So I emailed her, uh, Dr. Olivia Milburn, um, and I said, I'm doing this research on this project. It's for a game, and your research came up uh, in my preliminary sort of search. And she was over the moon and sent me a PDF of all the resources I needed for free. And scholars are very, very keen on doing that. Um, as long as you are, you're respectful and you're showing interest in their work. Um, I also would say, you know, a lot of museums have free resources on material culture. So the, uh, the Met has a free visual database that you can go to to find a lot of information and provenance data on objects. Uh, many museums also publish these. Uh, my favorite is actually the Royal Armories in the UK. Uh, the Royal Armories, they have a beautiful website where you could also buy the rights to publish their photos in your publications as well of their artifacts. So if you ever want to do like a weapon guide or something, you can go to the Royal Armories and get a license for them. They also publish books um, and they have like arms and armor series for like all over the world. And I got this for like 10 bucks. And it's literally Chinese arms and armor by the Royal Armories and it's written by their scholars. Uh, and it's got all beautiful um, pictures and context about Chinese arms and armor through time. Uh, another one, this is from uh, University Press. So many universities have like big Ivy League schools and other like high profile institutions have their own publishing houses. And Cambridge University Press has one on Chinese clothing. And it's literally the history of Chinese clothing based on, you know, art surviving materials but also what i think is interesting is that they talk about uh the different cultures within china and their different forms of dress there's like an entire section on the history of how makeup is applied throughout the different dynasties or how different types of uh undergarments uh evolved throughout time it is really really cool especially if you want to, if you have an idea of what your setting looks like based on maybe the tropes that you are used to, going to resources like this, like these sort of comprehensive entry-level resources that kind of look at the entire history of a culture or region are really great for kind of uncovering your biases and identifying what is actually more authentic with air quotes. Um, yeah, those are, those are the books that I brought out. Uh, Chinese Clothing, Chinese Arms and Armor, and the Shanghai Jing.
Do you folks have anything else? What about food? What would be the best resource on food? Honestly, I just, would just Google like, <laughs> like <laughs> I, so the way that I have done research personally, um, about like Chinese culture to put in the game, like, or like the redacted, um, project that we worked on is I did first, I think I first went to Wikipedia and then, well, I have the advantage of knowing how to read Chinese um, so and I recognize that a lot of sources are just more readily available in Chinese if you're looking into the culture but like I found a lot of times what I did was I would look at um, the sometimes they'll include like the Chinese characters for certain things and then I would like copy and paste that and I I've done this for research with into other link like other cultures with languages that I don't read and I would like Google things related to that and then Google Translate. So for example oh, yeah. like with food, like if you Google Translate like uh, one of the the main what was it like eight cuisines um you can google yeah, the eight that. culinary traditions. Um sometimes there are English like sites but sometimes there are sites that are in chinese and then you know now with google translate being so readily available i would also look at that um that's how i went about it for myself yeah uh, there was also um the chat eisen mentioned a bite of china mm. the food documentary yeah let's go on uh there's there's one on netflix if you folks still have a netflix uh, account i don't is, is um, a bite of China? Where do you watch that now? I, I don't even. I don't know. know where you can watch that one now. Mm-hmm. But there was one on. Um, fla- there's one a series called Flavorful Origins mm. that was on Netflix. Yeah. That was really good because it went into very obscure, uh, at least to, from a Western perspective, obscure cuisines, and talked about how a particular dish or a particular ingredient, because each episode is an ingredient, um, impacts the daily life of people in these small locations. Like, there's a whole episode on mutton um, and all the different dishes. It was a really cool series. Really cool series. Um, for both of them, like folks in the chat have said, do not watch them on an empty stomach. Because um, they're real good. Uh, I would say this is p- perhaps a radical one. Uh, but Anthony Bourdain's uh, TV series are probably the best example of how a non-Asian person can go to Asia and learn about the culture because he always approached everything from the lens of food and he was never afraid to eat something which I think is really important especially around tropes around like food because you know we talked when we were talking about like Neon Dynasty Kamigawa and how there's that card dockside chef and that perpetuates this stereotype that Chinese food is gross and and exotic Mm. and um, unpalatable. Uh, But folks like Anthony Bourdain went and ate everything and tried to understand them from the perspective of the chef, which I think is really important. Especially if you're not Chinese and you're trying to understand how you can best approach it. I have not seen that card before. (laughs) Wow. Okay, yeah, it was really bad, right? I I mean, it's really bad. (laughs) I just saw the eyeball in the bowl of noodles, yeah. 
And look at the, I mean, it's like the flavor, the flavor text too. Yeah. You know, it's good if it's moving or something like that. And if you think about the mechanics surrounding it and everything, um, it's disappointing, especially since Watsi was really like cultural consultants. Um, mm. And it's another example of why, you know, cultural consultants aren't the end all be all because they could do a lot of fantastic work, but they might not even, even have seen that card. Right. And this is where, you know, research, research, research is so important. Um, but that said, we also have one last thing to talk about. And the last thing we have to talk about are our amazing patrons. Um, we have a lot of people who, you know, make Asians represent a, a reality. You're the reason why we can, uh, we're going to be able to upgrade all of our gear the reason why we'll be able to get like a new webcam for, for Jeremy and Agatha, a new mic if needed for Jeremy and Agatha and everybody else on the team. If we need lights, if, you know, we need, um, you know, designs for merch, we actually have the ability to do that now. And I'm really happy because our patrons, some of our patrons are finally getting some of the merch that we sent them. And they're getting our Bubble Tea Book Club dragon stickers now which is so cool i'm gonna make sure that we keep doing stuff like that um and uh yeah we have a lot of people to thank um especially like our most honorable honorable patrons uh metal weave games andreas who i think is like a great example of a non-asian designer who goes and does a lot of research and is like really uh conscientious about how he interacts with the community and stuff um, obviously, like Liana, Valorous Games, who is going to be publishing Wandering Blades. Um, I got to show both of you the uh, logo for Wandering Blades after we stream after the stream is done because we got all that all the assets in, and I think it looks awesome. Uh, Dungeon Glitch slash Matt, who was also at D and D Summit with me, does a great job of you know trying to bring positivity to the community. Um, most honorable times two epic impulse, who asked asked a really great question. Um, during this uh, uh during the stream and then of course like michelle um congratulations on on your your new baby um stefan who's going to be on the podcast in the future stefan and i had a really great conversation about scholarship and ttrpgs um and there is a thing that i want to do with involve both of you in and i think it might intrigue you agatha as a story gamer but i want to try playing what is called a Bronstein. Um, and I'm writing a piece for my Substack. Actually, I'm going to first shout out Bob C because you're awesome and super honorable too. Um, but I am writing a piece for my Substack called Inventing the Role-Playing Game. It's kind of like a series where I'm trying to dive into um, the history of RPGs from, in a more accessible way. And I'm diving into the history of the first GM or the person who invented the practice of role-playing in tabletop games. And his name is David Wesley. And he created this game called the Bronstein. And it is very, very enigmatic to a lot of people. Um, But he is essentially the first person who created this sort of practice of role-playing because after him, Dave Arneson, who was a big fan of the Bronstein, kind of combined it with his like love of chain mail and made Blackmore, which eventually, you know, turned into like his collaboration with Gygax in D&D. But I want to play a Bronstein. Mm -hmm. um, And I would like to involve Asians rep people uh, in it because I think it would be a lot of fun. 
Uh, it is not mechanically intense. In fact, like I'm doing so much research into trying to figure out what the rules are. <laughs> so it's very weird. There are pictures from like old Gen Cons where there are handouts to people and you have secrets and you have to say what your actions are and everybody has a role in this town. Um, seems very interesting and I would love to try playing it with the Asians Represent team. Um, and maybe we'll record it and uh, our, our patrons can watch us kind of fumble through what is basically the first TTRPG. Um, that could be really fun. Uh, but that said, I, I just want to thank you two for joining me for episode 69 of Asians Represent. Um, we've got some good episodes ahead of us. We are also, um, I'm going to put a call out for a guest. Uh, Liana is hosting the next episode or the episode after. Uh, and we're going to have Pam on as a guest. And it's going to be about Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, after all these years of asking me, we're finally doing an episode on Final Fantasy XIV. But we are looking for a guest who is a fan of the game uh, and can speak to the representation of uh, Japanese culture in it. Um, so we, we can't rely on, on Emma for this one because Emma's never played the game. Um, so we're looking for somebody who, who can speak to that. Um, so if you know someone or if you are someone who can do this, like if you are Japanese, uh, please get in touch with a member of the Asians Represent team, preferably like myself or Liana. Uh, for this episode really excited um and if you think that you'd be a really good guest for a future of asians represent if you want to do an episode of homebrewing asia and you really liked this and you want to talk about your culture and how it can be represented on the tabletop or in a product um let us know uh, if you're a member of our discord community please reach out to like one of us um, we'd love to know, we'd love to help you out. We'd love to help you share your stories with, you know, the world. Um, and that's kind of what Asians represent is all about. And, uh, I'm just super grateful that we're back and that the three of us got to do this episode. Um, but that said, uh, take care everyone. And we'll see you next time on Asians represent for episode 70, because there will never be another episode 69. Bye everyone. Bye.